0: This is Carol Foster of 2 Timothy 2.15 Resources, and I am so excited that you're going to join me today as we study God's Word. The response new Messianic believers give when asked why they initially visited a Messianic congregation is, we knew there had to be more. As we study together, we will begin to see that, yes, indeed, there has to be more. For additional study aids to assist you in studying along with us, go to our website, sectim.org. The last time we met, we were studying Shemot, chapter 11, verses 4 through 8. This is the account of the tenth plague that Yahweh had sent against Pharaoh and Egypt. If you've missed our last program, or any of the previous programs of this study, you can hear them as podcasts at www.hebrewnationonline.com. Torah Teaching, There Has to Be More. In this section of our passage, we discovered that this was to be the final plague and would cause Pharaoh to not only let the Israelites go, but he was going to drive them out of the land. I want to read this section so that we can remain in context. Moses said, Thus says the Lord. About midnight I am going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Go out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. This section is titled, The Announcement of the Final Decisive Plague to Pharaoh. We find that this section opens with the typical messenger formula of, Thus says the Lord. So that Pharaoh had no doubt that Moshe was again speaking as a prophet. The words that were given to him by Yahweh. We also noted that Yahweh announced in these verses that he would personally move through Egypt to bring about the death of the Egyptian firstborn. This personal involvement of Yahweh represents a further heightening of the severity of the plagues. We discussed why Yahweh had announced that the plagues were going to occur at about midnight and found that it was because midnight in the ancient world was the deepest darkest time of night when the most people were likely to be asleep and the time of greatest vulnerability and defenselessness if we were to think about the plagues from the point of view of the mercies of Yahweh causing the death of so many Egyptians was indeed a severe punishment but allowing them to die quietly in their sleep was an act of mercy and grace We determined that the great cry that was predicted in verse 6 was not the cry of pain from death. Rather, it was the crying of grief at the morning's discovery that during the night an eldest child had died. We also again read in verse 7 that Yahweh again makes a distinction between the Egyptians and his people, the Israelites. It states but against any of the sons of Israel a dog will not even bark whether against man or beast that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel again the people of Yahweh were to be spared from harm during this devastating and final plague brought upon Pharaoh and his people this is where we left off in our last session together the last verse of this section is verse 8 Let me read it again as we continue. All these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Go out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Moshe then predicted to Pharaoh yet another, this time final, statement of distinction or reversal of roles between the Israelites and the Egyptians. The very people who had once bowed down to Pharaoh would bow down to Moshe, not to acknowledge him as their sovereign as they did with Pharaoh, but to plead with him to leave Egypt and to take the Israelites with him. This prediction represents yet another humiliation of Pharaoh. Moshe now stated that all the Egyptians would disagree with the king's policy. A disagreement that had, of course, been progressively increasing. Now, Moshe announced that the time would come when despite Pharaoh's official position of resistance to the Exodus, everyone else, as embodied in those who were supposedly most loyal to him, his own court officials, would want the Exodus to happen. They would beg for it on their knees, as we might say figuratively in modern English. When Moshe said in verse 8, All your servants will come down to me, he's referring to the idea of the officials coming down off the royal platform, where they usually stood next to the king. Moshe's words paint an image of the royal officials abandoning their pharaoh. A future action consistent with the words that they will say, requesting that the accidents commence. Go out, you and all the people who follow you. That is when Moshe would leave Egypt, when the king's policies had been proved worthless by their abandonment, even at the hands of people supposedly the closest and most loyal to him. Moshe's anger in leaving Pharaoh was related to the unwarranted, undeserved, death threat pharaoh had pronounced against him as we read in chapter 10 verse 28 and not to any other intervening factors let's read this verse so that we can understand this threat better then pharaoh said to him get away from me beware do not see my face again for in the day you see my face you shall die those who read this passage are expected to understand that all Moshe's words had presumably been delivered through his anger at the end of this encounter with Egypt's king. Now, as we move on to our last section of this chapter, verses 9 and 10, which I've entitled, Review of Pharaoh's Prior History of Resistance to the Exodus, I want to read these verses so that we can once again remain in context. I know that I keep repeating this statement, but it is imperative that when you study the scriptures that you always remain in context. Verses 9-10 through state, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh. Yet, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Just as a side note, have you noticed that in this chapter, Moshe has not yet gone to or spoken to Pharaoh? This has been a discussion between Yahweh and Moshe. Yahweh has been telling Moshe exactly what is going to happen, and what Pharaoh's final response will be. The words of verse 9 are essentially a summary of what Yahweh had instructed Moshe while he was in the desert of Midian, which can be found in chapter 4, verses 21 through 23, which state, The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Moshe knew from the very beginning what it was going to take for Pharaoh to let Yahweh's people go. Verse 10 reminds us, the reader, of what had been happening throughout the plague accounts. Always as predicted, Yahweh showed his wonders to the world. But we've also discovered that Pharaoh was indeed made a fool of by Yahweh, the one true God of the Israelites. Yet, Pharaoh continued to resist the obvious conclusion, by now obvious to everyone but Pharaoh himself, that the best thing he could do was to let the Israelites leave Egypt permanently and totally. As we move to the next section of this tenth plague, found in chapters 12, verses 1 through chapter 13, verse 16, we'll read of the Pesach, or Passover, and the Exodus. From a modern reader's point of view, the lengthy description of how to prepare for and celebrate the annual ritual of Pesach, or Passover, coupled with instructions on consecrating and or redeeming the firstborn of both humans and animals, which is found in Exodus chapters 12 and 13, might seem to interfere with the flow of the narrative. After all, the story so far has been building plague by plague up to an expected final, climatic plague that we the reader have been told would compel Pharaoh to release the Israelites from Egypt now we might be forgiven for not wanting to stop to read a rather lengthy section of instructions about how Pesach and the consecration of the firstborn were to be undertaken indeed anyone looking for uniformity of subject matter as a key to understanding the structure of the book of Shemot might be puzzled at the introduction here of legal material, months prior to the Israelites' arrival at Sinai, where they presumably should have begun to receive the instructions. In other words, shouldn't all these words about Pesach and the firstborn follow in their proper course somewhere perhaps around chapter 23? where the three annual festivals and their timing are formally announced to the Israelites as a covenant community. What could the reader have been thinking? The answer, I think, is that the writer, Moshe, was thinking of the best interests of his audience. His immediate audience was the people of Israel at the time they were in the wilderness of Sinai, awaiting the opportunity to enter into and settle the promised land. This is where they would need to follow these instructions carefully after a long hiatus of not having had any practice in following them at all. His long-term audience was all Israel throughout history, an audience positioned to benefit from the real point of the Exodus story, that Yahweh supernaturally delivers His people from bondage to bring them to a promised land, and that they belong to Him not to themselves. These features make the Exodus event powerfully relevant to modern believers in Messiah. The fact that Moshe was inspired to force the reader to take account of these instructions at this stage in his five-chapter work is a literary blessing rather than evidence of literary awkwardness. For believers in Messiah, the fact that Yeshua HaMashiach is the true and ultimate Pesach Lamb, the firstborn of many brothers and sisters, and the Redeemer of all, is a truth worthy of the powerful pause that draws it to our attention, speaking of this promise and redemption in these chapters before it would occur. I'm going to spend some time in these verses as I feel it's imperative that we understand the relationship between the Israelite Pesach Lamb and our ultimate Pesach Lamb, Yeshua. Our first section of this passage is found in chapter 12, verses 1-11. through We find in these verses Yahweh's guidance for preparing and eating the Pesach meal. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbors nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, And they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Pesach. In the first verse of this passage, we find that the importance of these verses lies in its identification of Moshe and Aaron, who were Levites and priests, as recipients of the legal instructions that follows. It was the responsibility of Levites and priests throughout the generations of Israel, not only to keep the law themselves, but also to enforce it and to teach it to the entire population as well. Thus, the nation's first two Levitical priests are mentioned prominently as a model for all later proper clergy. And the instructions assume great importance in as much as these legal instructions were given to them while they were still in Egypt, that is, even prior to Mount Sinai. We next read that Moshe and Aaron are told that this month would be the beginning month of the year for the Israelites. Why should Yahweh have to tell the Israelites when their year began, that is, which month was to be the first in their calendar? The answer has two aspects. One is that this was not at all a settled question for them and therefore they needed a revealed guidance on the matter. The other aspect is that Yahweh was teaching them to link even their measuring of time to his calling on their lives. Why was it not a settled question? The people groups of the ancient world varied in their sense of when the year should begin with some cultures choosing a fall new year and some celebrating a spring new year. It is possible that most of the various Canaanite groups celebrated a fall new year and that one reason for this ruling from Yahweh was to be sure that the Israelites differentiated themselves from the Canaanites near whom they were eventually to live. If you remember, they would indeed, at some time in the future, live among the Canaanites because of their eventual unfaithfulness in the conquest of the land. Even so, the Israelites themselves were part of a broad culture that, informally at least, regarded the transition from summer to fall as the end of the year, and therefore the fall as the beginning of the calendar. This sense of calendar is sometimes known as the agricultural calendar, because it pays special attention to the time of harvest as the conclusion of the agricultural year. We see that many of the Israelites' feasts and festivals use the language of the agricultural calendar, such as the Feast of Weeks, celebrated with the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and the Feast of the Ingathering at the turn of the year, when you gather in your crops from the field. It's clear that in terms of formal teaching in the Pentateuch, the new year is firmly established as commencing in the spring, the month of Nisan, what we would call March or April, being the first month, and that the seventh month was the one in which the fall festival was dated. Here we read that Yahweh has decided that history determines the calendar, and particularly the history of Yahweh's saving act of the Exodus does just this. Whatever might theoretically have been their previous thinking about a calendar, Yahweh decreed to His covenant people that they would henceforth have a calendar designed to remind them of how they first became a people. It happened because of their deliverance by His mighty hand out of the bondage of the oppressor, an act so important that it was also to be memorialized by a special annual feast, Pesach, or the Feast of Passover. At its heart, the Pesach, or Passover, is a meal, a commemorative feast. Some modern American holidays are feasts, such as Thanksgiving and New Year's Day. Others are not, Labor Day or Memorial Day. Feast holidays have a special emphasis of careful preparation, thus the instructions in verse 3 that the sacrificial animal is chosen four days before the feast so that there will be no last-minute arrangements and the possibility of haphazard celebration or lack of availability. For gathering people together to share a common gratitude and or remembrance as they share the common meal linked to that gratitude and remembrance. The gathering of an entire family of Israel or a group of families eating one animal, though in separate houses, together at a dinner table helped symbolize the general pattern throughout the nation, that is, the whole nation eating it together, though of course at individual locations. In accordance with the feast nature of the Pesach, Moshe was told that the whole nation, tell the whole community of Israel, must be instructed to eat the meal as household, not as individuals. Thus, great emphasis is placed on sharing the meat of a single animal. The goal was to have one goat kid or lamb for each full family, one for each household. Therefore, if a household were composed of perhaps just one, two, or three people, and they could not by themselves consume a whole goat kid or lamb at one sitting, as we read in verse 4, provides for sharing the meal with the next door family so that every one of the two houses eats together from a single, sacrificed animal and finishes the meat of that animal during the meal. That's the meaning of the statement to share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. This might produce some situations in which a rather large number of people, consuming a goat, kid, or lamb, might each get only a relatively small portion of meat to eat. But the alternative meat left over, or someone being forced to gorge themselves, so to finish off all the meat in one sitting, was strictly to be avoided. Therefore, the statement at the end of verse four, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat, or as it might be more clearly translated, you must calculate the amount of goat kid or lamb which each person will eat relative to the number of people. This basic principle was, everyone had to eat the meat, and all the meat had to be eaten. Why not allow leftovers? Why not allow gorging? Secondary answers to these questions could include the concept of sharing and its benefits for creating a sense of solidarity among the Israelites, and a guarantee that no one would miss out on sharing the understanding of why this meat was being eaten because they ate in isolation from the group setting. It was in the group setting that the memorialized words and actions were rehearsed and would be appreciated by all. However, the greater value is found in his prophetic preparation for the Messiah. The Messiah was to be one body, unblemished by sin, broken for all, and symbolically eaten by all, as a timeless reminder of his sacrifice for us. It was also to keep us aware of our unity or echad as members of one body, the body of believers in Yeshua HaMashiach partial consumption, and fragments left over do not appropriately symbolize that body and that unity. The ultimate purpose of the Tanakh Pesach instruction is to point forward to Messiah, to the purpose of His death, and to the unity of those accepted by Him as His people and His body. Join us next time as we continue our study and overview of the Tanakh. Thank you for joining us today as we delve into the beautiful truth of God's Word to indeed discover that there has to be more. I pray that the Word applied to your daily life will bring a deeper understanding of His love letter written just to you. Let me remind you that we have additional study aids to assist you with our studies together on our website, sectim.org. May this day fill you with the love of God, joy, and shalom. Nothing missing, nothing broken in your life.